Well, good to be together. Uh, and man, so much we can be thankful to God for. I am thankful. You know, if you look at this list of, of stuff happening, I'm thankful. You realize how many volunteers it takes, many volunteers doing many more than one thing in order to offer all these opportunities for children to grow in Christ, for, for teenagers to grow in Christ, for us to reach our community for Christ, for adults to grow. Lots of volunteers doing a lot of things. Uh, by the way, another thing that probably gets overlooked too often is in order for all these things to be known to all sorts of different people, uh, Kirsten takes in a lot of information from a lot of people and puts it out in a lot of different ways so that we can know stuff. So thankful for Kirsten doing that, thankful for volunteers doing all sorts of different things as we jump into fall. Speaking of volunteers, you don't know. When you're volunteering in like children's and youth ministry, you don't know what kind of impact you're having, maybe for like for that moment, but oftentimes I think for a long-term future. So I'm standing up here today and my son Isaiah comes up to me and says, hey dad, Ivan's here. Like, great, Ivan. Uh, and, I, and Isaiah says, like your Sunday school teacher from when I was in middle school. So my middle school Sunday school teacher, Ivan, and his wife Lou are back there, uh, and they just showed up this morning in Iowa, uh, and I'm so grateful uh, that Ivan and Lou are here faithfully serving Jesus when I was a middle school student and still doing that uh, today, and so I'm very, very great. I'm old now, and so they're older too, uh, but I'm really, really grateful for people like Ivan and Lou throughout our church who faithfully serve Jesus over the long haul and make personal sacrifices to do it. So praise God for that. Uh, looking forward to what God might do in these coming weeks. Question for you as we get started today. You can open up your Bible, by the way, to Hebrews chapter 4. Do you feel like you get good rest? You feel like you get good rest. Maybe you're one of those people that wears a watch to bed that tells you in the morning. You have to look at your watch and see if you got good rest or not. Uh, I'm kind of old-fashioned. Like, I can tell if I got good rest by how I feel. So I don't wear a watch to bed that tells me that. I just wake up and I know, like, I either slept good or I didn't. Um, But either way, many of us would probably admit, man, I probably could use more rest. I probably could use some better rest. And we're entering a season Uh, just by looking at the bulletin and a lot of other things, a lot of you farmers, and so you're entering a season where your level of activity and busyness is going to increase. Many of us uh, involved in the school in some way as teachers, students, and so our level of activity has increased as the school year has started. We've got activities, we've got concerts, we've got games, we've got meets, performances, Awana, life group, youth group, Sunday school, all sorts of different things. A lot that keeps us busy, and some of you can't even remember the last time you felt well-rested. Maybe because you have little kids in the home and they don't sleep much when you want to sleep, and so you're up more than you'd like to be. Maybe because as soon as you try to sleep, anxious thoughts just flood your mind and you have a hard time sleeping. Maybe there's just some things going on in you physically and your body, though tired and worn out, just won't sleep. We need rest. We need more rest, many of us. We need better rest, I think, all of us. And today we continue our series in Hebrews by looking at most of chapter 4. And you're going to hear, as we read it here in a moment, the word rest or rested, I think, show up probably ten times. And in this chapter, we will be pushed to make sure that we are one of the people 
who hear the Word of God and respond with faith in Jesus so that we can be assured that we will enter a better rest. So if you're able to, would you stand as we read God's Word? First, let's pray. Father, just a simple prayer as we look at your word now, knowing that your word is living and active. We want it to do something. So God, would you come and do something in us? Help us not to be passive listeners, that we just kind of hear some stuff. But I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight and that you would be pleased to do a good work among us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 4, I'll read today verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can be seated. All right. Uh, I, I'm looking around, and there's some of you that, uh, that are new here. Uh, and so just to catch you up, and all of the rest of us need review anyway. Hebrews, we've been walking through. We've just done one chapter a week. Today, we're not getting all the way through chapter 4. But Hebrews is basically a sermon. A sermon written to people who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they heard the gospel, they were already religious people. They were Jewish people, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and turned, repented of sin, trusted in Jesus, it seems. But now many of them tempted to turn back. And so the argument, the aim of the book of Hebrews is to convince them that Jesus is better than anything, so they should stick with Jesus. And last week, chapter 3 started to make the case that Jesus, in fact, is better than one of the heroes of their faith the character from the Old Testament called Moses, and many reasons that he was lifted up as a hero, but the argument in chapter 3 was, but Jesus is better than 
Moses. And the argument was made by using something from one of their hymn books, basically. Psalm 95, something that God's people would have used as they gathered together, something written many years after the Exodus, but referring back to the Exodus and the time of wandering in the wilderness. And so using this psalm, which was quoted a lot last week in chapter 3, and is re-quoted again here in chapter 4, the argument is that there are some who fail to enter God's rest because though God has made a promise and though they have heard it, that they back in that day, failed to enter because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion. Most of those who wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years would not enter the promised land or Canaan, a place of rest. And that's where we pick it up today. So, inside your bulletin, if it's helpful to see an outline, there is an outline in there. I try to follow it as I walk through the passage. And you'll see here, the first section, all 1 through 11, is really about entering his rest. First, let's look at verses 1 to 3. You notice that it starts with good news. Again, starting with the word therefore, this is all really tied in. This would have been like, if, because this was really like a sermon, this would have been one point in the sermon, but we stretched it out over two weeks. Okay? So therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... He's highlighting for them, yes, remember, in our nation's history, there was this promise that they would enter into the land. And he's saying that wasn't just the promise for your ancestors wandering around in the wilderness. That's a promise that still stands today. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. And then there's this command that's really, really interesting. Notice the command in the rest of verse 1. Let us fear. Did you know that one of the most common commands in all of Scripture is, do not fear? And that's why it catches our eye when we're reading through this. And the command is not do not fear. The command is, let us fear. There are some things of which we should be fearful. We're commanded not to be fearful of a number of things, but here the command is, let us fear. What are we to fear? Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's this possibility then that some who have been a part of the church hearing this sermon, listening to this sermon, assumed probably by themselves and people all around them to be Christians, will not enter the promised rest of God. And they are called to fear that. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, why would they fail to reach it? It's not because they haven't heard, because look at what it says next in verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. The difference isn't that some people haven't heard it. They've they've heard it, but listen to what it says in verses 2 and then the beginning of 3. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened, for we who have believed enter that rest. What was true in their day is true in our day. The good news 
The gospel comes, and those who enter are those who believe. God's promise is inherited by faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in every generation, some believe and some do not. Just hearing it alone isn't enough to save you. There needs to be a hearing and a believing. Those who failed to reach God's rest are those who heard but didn't believe, and those who believed are those who entered the rest. You see those two groups there in verses 2 and 3. And then he moves on with this argument, continuing in verse 3 where it says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So he's going back to this pattern. Like he's going back really far in history, like all the way to creation, all the way to what we read in Genesis 1 and 2, where God is creating all things in six days. There's morning, there's evening, that day is finished. And then the, the unique thing is he gets to day seven, and on day seven, God rested from all of his works. And so he's referring back to that as this pattern of work and then rest, of looking forward to a rest, and we're ultimately looking forward to God's new creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And this entering God's rest is this pattern we see all the way back from Genesis 1 and 2. And then it's a shadow that we see in Israel wandering in the wilderness and seeking to enter the promised land. So that's what he covers next in verses 6 to 8. Let's look at this. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news, now he's talking about the people wandering in the wilderness, right? They had seen God's mighty works, God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. They've seen this. They've heard of God's promised land. But some of these who formerly received the good news failed to enter. Why? Because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So again, the possibility of entering God's rest was not just something that God promised to one group of people, the, the wandering Israelites in the wilderness hundreds of years ago. It's a promise that still holds for the people hearing the sermon from the book of Hebrews. That's why he started out, while the promise, in verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and then now in verse 6 we see, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And this emphasis on today, which we saw last week as well. And then verse 8 I think is most clear. Here's what it says. Did you hear it? For if Joshua, who's Joshua? Remember, Joshua was Moses' predecessor. So Joshua, Moses, didn't get to lead the people into the promised land. He led them out of slavery in Egypt, led them while they wandered in the wilderness, but then Moses dies, not entering the promised land. But Joshua is the one who takes them in. And he's saying here in verse 8, 
Listen, if that was it, if that was like the end of it, like Joshua got them into the promised land, story, story ends. We're, we're good, right? It's like, no, that's not the end. Right? A few of God's people gathering a small plot of land in the Middle East was not God's ultimate plan. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Israel entering the promised land under Joshua is like a foreshadowing of a much bigger thing that God is doing through all of human history where His people will enter His place under His rule forever. All right. Look at verses 9 through 11. That's the last part we're going to look at. Well, we've got to look at verses 12 and 13 in a, in a moment, but I want, to, I want to do some application after verses 9 through 11. Here's, here's what we read in 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest, or again, remains, still to come, for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest. So in verse 9, it's talking about a future rest for us. It still remains. But in verse 10, it's more present tense, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So, so it's a rest still to come in the future that remains, the, the full, like, full experience of God's rest that is promised to his people. Eternity forever with him in heaven and then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. That's something we long for that's still in the future, but even now, us who trust in Christ experience God's rest even now. We see that there in verse 10. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It doesn't mean we're like lazy. Uh, it just means that we know that everything necessary for our salvation has already been done by Christ. Think about that. That, that the penalty of sin already paid for by Christ. The power of sin conquered by Christ. And one day when he comes again, the presence of sin totally gone. And that's when we're going to be at complete and perfect rest. So we look forward to that. And then verse 11 says this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's kind of a tension there. Have you ever tried really, really hard to fall asleep and found out that when you try really, really hard to fall asleep, you can't fall asleep? So he says here, strive to enter that rest. Strive or wrestle or fight. There, there's a lot of effort involved in entering that rest. But I thought, I thought, they, thought we enter that rest by faith, not by us striving and working really hard. But right here it says, let us strive that we may enter that rest. We're going to have to work through that here in a moment. What's been clear, though, so far is this, that some fail to enter that rest. Who is it? It's those who don't believe and then have disobeyed. And their disobedience points back to the fact that they have not believed, right? This striving, this fighting, this obedience is not what saves us, but it's what points back to the evidence that we have believed. So there's some arrows up there. It, it, that's the way my mind thinks. I need like lines to help me see stuff. So, so that's, I think, a summary of what we see here in verses 1 through 11. The difference, the distinction is not between some people who hear and some who don't. 
It's we hear the good news, but the reality, some at the end fail to enter the rest and some enter the rest. What's the difference? Well, some don't believe. And that is evidenced by the fruit of their unbelief is disobedience. Likewise, those who hear and believe will have fruit of their belief or obedience or striving or fighting to continue to obey or, as we saw last week, holding fast. So let's, let's talk about this because this is, a, this is a message that we need to hear. And I want to just, I want to, I get it that Hebrews is kind of complicated, but it is so relevant. And so I wrestled with this this week and thought, man, how, how do I get specific and direct about an application from this? And I'm going to do that right now. First of all, we need to hear a command in this passage, a command to be fearful. Again, that sounds strange because most of the time we're commanded not to be fearful, but here we're called to be fearful of something. What are we supposed to fear? Remember back in verse 1, let us fear. Fear what? I think failure. We are to fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We are to fear that some who we assume are among God's people will actually not enter his rest. Some who we assume are among God's people because they're, they're religious, they're, they're church people. Some like that will not be in heaven when they die, will not live forever with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Some who identify with the church, some who have seen God's mighty works, listen, some who maybe even at one time proclaimed faith in Jesus. They, they did something, right? Maybe they were baptized, maybe they were confirmed, maybe they prayed a prayer, maybe they filled out a card, maybe they walked an aisle. They did something that seemed to indicate belief, faith in Jesus. They even maybe professed faith in Jesus. But if what has continued since that point is not a striving, is not a, not a, a faith working itself out in believing and, and, and obeying, but instead has looked like consistent, unrepentant sin and disobedience, we should not have confidence that the, that person will enter God's rest. You get So that's what he's saying to them. Let us fear that there, there are some who you might assume because of some of their actions in the past or something like that, are going to enter God's rest. Don't assume that they will. We'll get specific even more, because that's kind of specific, but I want to get more specific. There are some of you who have family members who you assume that you will see in heaven because at one point in the past they did something that made you think that they were saved. And you assume that if they die, they'll be in heaven. Yet the fact that there is not now and has not been for some time any evidence, any fruit, any obedience that would reveal that they truly do trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, this should cause you to fear that they will not enter God's rest. And I'll be even more direct. There are some of you sitting here today who have been doing church things for a really long time. 
Maybe at one point you even prayed a prayer, got baptized, walked an aisle, whatever it might be. But you are living right now in unrepentant sin and disobedience, which could be revealing your unbelief. I fear, and I think it's right for me to fear, and it's right for us as a church to fear, according to this passage, that you might be one of those who fails to enter his rest. Fear and failure, and then faith and fighting. A passage like this forces us to stop and examine ourselves and our assumptions. Not all will enter God's rest. That's an uncomfortable truth, isn't it? Not all will enter God's rest. Will you? Will the people you love? Hebrews was written as a wake-up call to people who were drifting, as a warning to people who were tempted to turn back. How do I know that I and the people I love will one day enter his rest? Listen, very simple again. Those who enter that rest will be those who hear the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. No one can be saved by their own works. That needs to be clear, right? No one can be saved by their own works. But we also need to make it clear that someone who has a genuine faith in Jesus will show evidence of that by their obedience. Faith without works is dead. They're striving, they're fighting, they're holding fast to the end. That's what we saw last week too. Let me just remind us, go back, if you've got your Bible open, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, it says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Listen to this. And we are his house. How do we know if we're his, his people, his house? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Skip ahead to verse 14 last week, chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. How do we know if we have come to share in Christ? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And next week, as Pastor Nick preaches the next passage, in chapter 4, starting right away in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's why we're starting to sing this song, Christ the sure and steady anchor, right? That I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Holding fast to the end. So when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, I think we ought to do that. Here's what I don't want to do. Let me just be clear. What I don't want to do is I don't want to cause doubt for those who are truly saved. Here's the problem of preaching to like 150 people. If I was in a conversation with you, I could ask you specific questions to know right where you're at. But I'm preaching to 150 people. I don't know where everybody's at. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to cause those of you who are truly saved to doubt your salvation. But at the same time, I don't want to give false hope or false assurance to those of you who have assumed that you're saved, but you're really not. Does that make sense? So, here's a couple sentences. We should fear that some who identify with the people of God, but live lives of unrepentant sin and disobedience, will fail to enter God's rest. 
But those whose faith in Jesus will fight to obey and hold fast to the end and will enter God's rest. Okay? Did I put that up there? Yeah, I did. We should fear that some who identify with the people of God but live lives of unrepentant sin and disobedience will fail to enter God's rest. We should fear that. But those whose faith is in Jesus will fight to obey and hold fast to the end and will enter God's rest as God causes them to persevere. Pastor Nick said to me this week, you know what we should do some week, which we should. We've now introduced this new song, Christ's Assurance Steady Anchor, where we say, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Some week we'll sing the other song that we sing, He will hold me fast. Right? Both of those things are true in Scripture. There's this us holding on. We're going to hold fast. We're commanded to hold fast. We saw it over and over again just in two chapters here. And our ultimate hope is the fact that he's the one that holds on to us. Both of those things true. All right. Man, we're, we're an hour in. We've got, we've got time to do about 15 more minutes, uh, 10 more minutes of preaching, and we're going to sing together. I, you can't skip verses 12 and 13. Let me be honest with you, though. I'm studying this passage, and I know verse 12 well. A lot of you kids that are in Awana, I'm going to read verse 12, and you might be able to quote every word of it with me. You've memorized this verse. Great verse. But as I struggled this passage, as I studied this passage, I struggled to think of like, okay, how does this fit in? It feels like he's saying all this stuff about entering God's rest, and, and then all of a sudden he's telling us about the Bible. I think it is pretty clear how it fits in after the Holy Spirit helped me to see that as I spent more time studying it. Let's just look at it again. Verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here's, I think, why it fits in this passage. In the first section, verses 1 through 11, the distinction is not between people who have heard and people who haven't heard. All the people had heard in verses 1 through 11. The distinction was between how people were affected by the Word of God or how they responded to the Word of God. Ultimately, it says here in verse 13, God is the one who judges. I can't know who's saved, who's not saved. But God is the one who judges. He is the one to whom everybody will give an account. And there is this exposing ourselves before God that happens by the power of God's Word. So, what does verse 12 say about what God's Word is and what it does? This is beautiful. This is a Word, listen, that is not dead. What does it say in verse 12? For the Word of God is living. It's living because the author is living. This is the very Word of God, the Word of a God who lives and reigns and He speaks, and so His Word then is living. His Word is active, it says, right? This is not just like, oh, this is a good history book. This is a good moral book. This is a good information source. That's selling the Bible so far short because the Word of God is living and active. Active means it's doing something. 
It's living and active. You may have also memorized from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, God's promise 800 years before the book of Hebrews, God's promise that, that God's word, when it goes out, will accomplish all for wh- all, every purpose for which he sends it out, right? Isaiah chapter 55, I think it's verse 11. And so the word of God is living and active. And then it's got some kind of violent words. Did you notice that? Like, like the word of God is not like positive, encouraging, inspirational thought, chicken soup for the soul kind of stuff that you put on your wall all the time. Sometimes the Word of God exposes us and pierces us. Listen to what it says. Sharper than any two-edged sword. You don't play around with it. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It's getting to things that seem inseparable and it's piercing into us. And listen to this scary thought in many ways. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God does not just help us to see our words and our actions, but helps us to see what's underneath all of that. The deep stuff inside where our words and our actions come from. All of these exposed by God's Word. And judged by God. This is a personal, powerful, piercing picture of the Word of God. And so I want to just close with some very quick application. Pastor Nick quoted it as he was welcoming you today. That we say, and we put it on the front of the bulletin every week, we want to be a church molded by God's Word. Not a church informed by God's Word. A church molded by Getting, getting molded means it's going gonna, it's gonna to move you, right? It's going to affect you in some way. That's the kind of church we want to be. Not just a church informed by or familiar with God's Word, but molded by it, affected by it. And let me just say this. This is the reality of what will happen. You will be exposed before God according to His Word and that might come now or it might come later. You could be among those who choose to ignore the Word of God, and you will be exposed later before entering eternal punishment, or you could be among those who allow God to do a work in us by His Word now. So that that as we spend time in the Word, we're asking the Holy Spirit, God, reveal my sin to me. Help me to see clearly what Christ has done for me. So that we, so that I can be a person who confesses, repents, and puts my faith in Jesus. My prayer is that this has been your response. That you are one of those who has been united by faith to those of us who have heard God's Word and believed. That you are together with God's people because you know your grip is looser than it should be. And we need help. That's what last week's message was all about. We need each other to help us to hold fast all the way to the end. Satan will buffet and trials will come. How how are we going to hold on? How are we going to have any assurance? We need one another 
church? If you're somebody who, who does not have assurance that you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, that you will one day enter His rest, that you, when you die, will go to be in heaven and you will be with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth after His return. If you're not confident of that, then let's talk about that. This is written that we might have some assurance. So I want to talk to you about that even today or sometime this week. Just get in touch with me. But I want to end by just reading three verses that are sobering and that take up the themes of what we've been looking at today. Much of the book of Revelation is sobering. Much of it points ahead to what is yet to come. And this passage is one of those, a prophecy of what is yet to come. I want you to notice as I read it, the references to some who will not rest and some who will rest. And what's sandwiched in the middle is a call for endurance. Hear God's word from Revelation 14. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Let's pray. Father, none of us are deserving of entering your rest. None of us. None of us deserving of spending all of eternity in your presence because all of us, though we might not have a lot of other stuff in common, we, we know that all of us before you have sinned and fallen short. We know that no amount of us working and striving on our own can save us, but we are saved by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we thank you for what Christ has done for us. We thank you that for all of us who are yours through faith in Jesus, we can sing that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And so help that to be a motivation for us to praise you, O Lord. And God, would you give us as a church a sense of urgency, even partially motivated by fear, that so many will die and face eternal punishment rather than eternal rest with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please stand.